at this point, to give a bit of context, usually I kind of give you a bit of history and that sort of stuff, but we have some living, breathing evidence of what it's like there. And, uh, and one part that we were able to get done this morning is Chris. So uh, um, would you come and lead the charge on this particular part? We've got a bit of a visual journey, so you can have this microphone and talk us through it. Morning, everyone. Be careful what you ask for. Pete was unwell and I said, do you want me to do this for you? And uh, he said, no, it's all under control. And then he said, actually, you are going to do this for me. So there you go. Um, he sounds a bit like Barry White, actually. You know, when you're sick and your throat gets really, really deep, you ought to hear it. It's very funny. Anyway, uh, so we're going to... Uh, we travelled to uh, Ephesus as a family about three years ago. Some of you actually have seen this footage. Some of you haven't, but we're just... Uh, you know, we'll go, through, we'll go through it again, and it's a bit of an introductory into Pete's message. I'm actually not going to preach his message, um, but I'm going to give you the beginning parts of what he was going to do anyway. So, Theo, do you want to put that one on? Hun? And so, this here is actually Laodicea. And um, this was not part of our tour when we went into Turkey. Um, what happened was our guide, whose name was Recep, a, a Turkish man, um, Muslim fellow, but not actually very heavily involved in it, but anyway, that, that were his words. He, um, uh, he was our guide, as I said, and um, uh, we were on our journeys. Rhonda and Graham gave us a couple of little um, Bibles to hand out to people we felt God show us, and he was one of them, and it seemed a bit strange giving it to a Muslim, but when he received it, he was so, so excited that he got onto the bus when we all boarded, and he says, guess what? The Telfords gave me a Bible, and we're there, shh. Keep it down, man. Um, he was very excited to receive it because he knew about Paul's journeys because as we went into Ephesus, he was able to tell us Paul's journeys and, and everything that, that Paul was doing and preaching and suddenly he had it there in the Bible. So it was really amazing for him. And we asked him, can you... Um, oh, now just stop here, Theo. Um, and we asked him, um, can you take us to Laodicea? And he said, well, it's not on our tour, but he actually spoke to the guys on the bus and drove us around there. And I think his idea was that we could probably all go in as a, as a group, but when you get to the gate, in typical Turkish fashion, you had to pay for everything. So, and he thought, I don't expect all the uh, guys and all of us on the bus to pay for it. So if any of you want to go, just go. I'll give you five, ten minutes. And so Peter and I and another lady, we just ran up this hill. It was a bit of a steep hill and... You can imagine us trying to run up there because I'm not young. Anyway, and um, it was a puff. But we get there, we pay our entry fee and we get there and we saw Laodicea. Now, did you see that as I was speaking? Did you see the cranes? Yeah. So that was three years ago. Um, you know, I'd like to go back to see what progress may have been made, if anything, between now and then in terms of the, um, that whole site and archaeological gig, but you can just imagine that, that street that you saw down there with the crane at the end of it. Okay, so we did Laodicea and then we went off into Ephesus. Now, um, this here, can we just go back there? Yeah, thanks. Yep, play. So this here is the entry point at which Paul, the road that Paul would have taken coming into Ephesus. He arrived at this point because 
as you go through the city at the end, he couldn't have arrived over there because the boat, that was the ocean. So he walked through in this way. Okay, and this is the entry to it. And so when I got here, I thought, oh, yeah, more ruins. But I tell you, when we got to a point and we turned a corner, it just opened up and I was like gobsmacked. My jaw dropped. I thought, whoa, this is amazing. So this is just still, again, here, the entry. Lots of things all over the place. Now, this here is a small amphitheatre. Now, Paul spent two years, two and a half years in Ephesus, which was the longest stay in any of his mission stops. And um, this here, the the guide here, this chap here, just stop here, Theo, that is Recep, that's our guide. And he was really fabulous, really, really good. And he was explaining here at this point that that small amphitheatre actually had a timber roof on it, right? And we're not sure... But um, um, I'll just skip a couple of notes here that Pete's given me. Um, the, um, the Bible makes reference to um, Paul teaching in a lecture hall at a place called Tyrannus. Now, Pete's, you know, umming and ahhing, maybe this was another name for it. Don't know. But nevertheless, that... Um, in this point here, Ephesus, Paul uh, met a lot of believers who only knew the baptism of John. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. So that's why um, Paul stayed there so long and he prayed and he sorted that out. Um, and he preached in the Jewish synagogues for about three months until he realised he wasn't really getting anywhere. And so that's when he started to teach in the lecture halls, in the theatre in there. And... Um, Uh, Other writings say that he taught in the lecture hall between 11 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, this is when my eyes were opened up and I saw this road just, whoa, open up before me with this city that I'm just trying to picture what life would have been like in that time. It would have been hustling, bustling, people everywhere. It would have been amazing. But anyway, so Paul spoke in the lecture theatre between 11 in the morning and 4 o'clock, which was the hottest part of the day. And um, the reason being that it would have been free and there wouldn't have been people in there. And so he spent two years preaching in that um, scenario, 11 to 4 o'clock in the hall there. So here we are walking along. It was just, it was a stinking hot day. It was, I remember it. it was so, so hot. But the crowds were just huge, absolutely huge, coming and going on buses all the time. And so we're going down this street. And we looked at a map, see, look at this. And right down the bottom there, see that? That's the library. I'll talk to you about that one shortly. But And, you know, you're following your guide with that, you know, anyone been on tours with the guides and the big stick and the... And the Triangle, follow me. <laughs> Going along like that. Look at that. That's just incredible. Look at all the people. Absolutely phenomenal. And we actually walked into the library. You can walk around. That's just a facade. And these here, I think, would have been shop fronts all along that main street. People selling all sorts of things along there. Um, Well, Paul's meetings became quite popular and the word began to spread throughout the region that this guy called Paul was preaching about a man named Jesus. And so everybody was 
wanting to know more and hear more. And God performed quite a few miracles through Paul's ministry. And this is where it was recorded in Ephesus that Paul would pray over a handkerchief or touch it and then that handkerchief would come into contact with the sick and the sick would get well just through that prayerful act. Give me a moment. Oh, we've turned the volume down because it's actually quite, um, quite loud and the wind blowing through and everything, it's, it's a bit not nice. So that's why I've just kept it low for you. We come to some public toilets soon, which is really amazing. Look, there they are. Check it out. And do you know that Ephesus is in a valley and water runs under there? So it worked really well that there was a sewage system flushing out. Where to? The sea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then they were, look, gosh, where's the privacy in that? There isn't any. <laughs> anyway, there they are. They were funny. We laughed our heads off. There's Mary. And we're coming closer to the library. And there's a podium there where lots of people stood and preached. You know, years ago we used to have preachers on street corners. Well, it would have been the same sort of thing. And that's the inside of the camera. Because <laughs> he switched it off or something, I don't know. <laughs> and we're back on. So now we're in the inside of the library and this is looking at the facade from the other side. It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? I'd like to go back, but I'm not sure about how with Turkey's situation at the moment. So, And uh, we're eventually going to make our way out of the city. They're actually excavating, if you're looking out this side, on the right side up that hill and there's lots of houses and they're excavating all of that currently. Well, sorry, well, I guess it is currently, but when we were there, that's what they were, they had blocked off and we were asked not to go along there. And so now this is looking into the city. We've walked out and we've turned around and we're looking back into it. So again, more pillars, more all sorts of stuff. So there would have been the entry that way. And then back here is the sea. There's a bigger amphitheatre coming up now. It's bigger than the first one you saw. And this is the one where... Um, Paul's followers would have been dragged in there and they shouted at them, Great as Artemis, for about two hours. So that would have been this one here, the amphitheatre. And this one is quite large. And the boys, Peter and Theo, went actually under it. So you'll get to see some of the tunnels under there where they would have probably sold pies and sausage rolls and, you know, had a, had a museum and, you know, had the urn there with the ashes and all that sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> So there's the entry there. So now we're under here. And, you know, the MCG is built around this sort of thing where you do, you go under and the stadium's built above. And it was said that conviction took hold of some people so much that they brought out scrolls. We missed, I missed that bit, sorry. But at the library, Peter's assuming that they would have brought the scrolls out of the library and these were scrolls that had things on them like um, sorcery and witchcraft and all that sort of stuff that was recorded on them and they burned them publicly. And the scrolls at that time had a value of 50,000 drachmas. Today's money, anyone want to have a guess? 
huge, $10 million. $10 million worth of scrolls that they just publicly burned. And we're almost there. There's just stuff everywhere. It's just... It's good that they're, you know, they've recognised the value of it and, you know, rebuilding it and it's a tourist site. If you can get there, it's fabulous. So now there's the amphitheatre that we just went under. It's pretty big, isn't it? And so that's where they would have been shouting Great is Artemis at followers of Paul. Hmm. That was amazing. I really enjoyed that, that part of our journey. Now, this is what we really want to show you too after all that. Ta-ra! <laughs> Only the Turks. <laughs> Genuine fake watches. <laughs> if they only knew what that oh, means. Oh, we better stop now because I don't want you to get... This is where we stayed. <laughs> Just show them a little bit, Theo. Oh, you switched it off. Never mind. Look at this. Uh, <laughs> we, that was fabulous. And the kids went for a swim. Did you go for a swim in there or was it too cold? You, you did, didn't you? Yeah. Not in there, in the, in the pool, this pool. <laughs> yeah, we were in one of those apartments way up the top there. Pete told me not to show you this part. <laughs> Don't tell him I showed you. Thanks, everyone. There you go. Now, nothing I say can compare with that. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to history and that, that's, you need a visual, don't you? And I love that. Acts 18. Let's look at a bit of Bible and just go through this a little bit. There's some good things just been pointed out there. We're just going to look at those scriptural references and just sort of speak into that a bit. So Acts 18, verse 24 to 28. Oh, we'll go on. Yeah, we'll keep reading from there. So Acts 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, although he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Keep going. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the, in, the interior and arrived at Ephesus. That's that track we just saw. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There was about 12 men in all. All right, we've got a very interesting Egyptian fellow named Apollos there. 
All right, he's a long way from home in Ephesus, and uh, the second biggest city of the Roman Empire at that time was Alexandria. And uh, he was a Jew, of course, and a quarter of that city was, in fact, uh, Jewish in, in Alexandria. That's where the Septuagint was kind of produced. Uh, just, it was uh, in Egyptian soil there. It's no big surprise that he was educated because that was a really big deal in that part of the world. One of the top three universities was in Alexandria. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and it's no surprise that he is a Jew, even though he was in a Greek province, Greek-speaking province, was well um, versed in scripture because of the origin of, of the Septuagint. He had made the scriptures in his own native tongue was actually quite readily available for him. And it appears he has a very good grasp on the person of Jesus Christ here. And he can teach it quite accurately and quite passionately. It's pretty cool. As we go into the next chapter, we see that Paul arrived in Ephesus and, uh, and we see a group of 12 interesting locals. It's kind of interesting that the two are spoken of and have very, very similar things going on here. We don't know much more about these 12 except they have all the appearance of godliness and they talk in a way that is consistent with the other believers that Paul has met and made in his travels. But something is a little bit off with both Apollo and the Ephesian travelers here. There's an intangible thing going on that causes the mature Christians around them to question where they're truly at. There's something... You ever met someone who claims Christianity, but you kind of go, really? Something just wasn't right here. As a minister, he was going, what are you missing? What's, it's a one degree out. What is it? We see that Priscilla, Aquila and Paul all saw the same thing in these men. And they lovingly and they sensitively and even discreetly take the time to find out what that intangible thing is. And uh, after a few questions, it becomes clear. Their faith experience is actually limited to what they learned from the influence of John the Baptist. Now, we know that John the Baptist was a really special guy. All right? His ministry was part of Old Testament prophecy. It was like there was actually his ministry would, would precede the ministry of Jesus. He plays a pivotal part in the New Testament narrative. All right? We see in the earthly sense that he and Jesus were related um, you know, we read in John 1 that he was sent by God. He spoke of himself as he quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 as a sign that his presence is in line with Old Testament prophecy. But we also see that he was positioned to prepare a people to hear and receive Jesus. All right, he tells his disciples that he would need to decrease in order for Jesus to increase. And he speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God and the one that his ministry pointed to. All right, and Luke 16, verse 16, Jesus says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and people are forcing their way into it. In other words, Jesus viewed John as the final statement of the old covenant people. He was not the theme of the New Testament. In fact, he was the bridge between the two periods of history in the story of God. It's pretty cool. All of the Old Testament and the covenant was designed to anticipate Christ and to prepare the world for his coming. And John the Baptist is included in that and the final voice of that. And the baptism that John did was one of purification. It was about repentance. It was about anticipation. Because, the, because things were about to get really interesting in Israel because the Messiah was at hand, was about to show up. 
There was a messianic, there was something in the air in Israel at that time. Something, God was brewing something. There was, uh, you know, you know about uh, an elderly, pro, you know, elderly man in, in the temple being told that in his lifetime he would see the Messiah. You know, and there, was, there was a sense that God was doing something. And John the Baptist's ministry fitted that bill perfectly. People were really starting to sense that and even wondering if he was the guy. It's pretty cool. Those who wanted to be godly went through this baptism, but it was not a baptism of salvation. It was essentially a baptism of preparation for Christ, a readiness to embrace his teaching. All right, A disciple who went through that and nothing else only had part of the gospel story and only a fleeting understanding of the salvation that was available to them. They would see their godliness through the lens of preparation alone. They would see themselves still saved by works. They wouldn't identify, have their godliness or their righteousness identified with the cross or the resurrection at any point at this point. If all they know is the baptism of Jesus. They know the person of Jesus. They know the baptism of John. They know about a good guy and they know about works. So Apollos and the Ephesians of Ephesus 12 are living out their faith in a very limited way. They knew the heavenly origin of Jesus, but they didn't know his redemption. They saw, they heard Jesus from afar, but didn't know the risen Jesus that dwelt intimately in the heart. They had separated themselves towards godliness and done good things, but without a true grasp of what the cross and resurrection meant, these guys weren't saved. They were not disciples of Christ, they were mere observers. In church today, if I can get personal, I go to a lot of places and I've met a lot of people, I've met a lot of people who occupy church seats who actually aren't saved. They know about Jesus, they've been on the outside looking in, they've kind of been around it a bit. They know all the right sounds, they they know how to do the right things, but haven't personally identified with what Jesus did on the cross. They're serving, they're faithful, they're clean living, they're regular attending, but still missing something. It becomes as if their church community connection is more real than their connection with Jesus. They're the life of the church party. Here's my notes, my hastily written notes. They're the life of the church party, but when it comes to Jesus himself, they're actually on the outside looking in. That situation's really clear. I see that when I look, I sort of role play the, the idea what Paul was, that conversation he was having with this 12. So guys, tell me about your salvation experience. Well, Paul, it all started when we heard that John guy telling us to get ready for something big. Oh, yeah, John the Baptist, he was a pretty cool guy, had an amazing job to do. What happened next? Well, he told us to get baptized because it was the good godly thing to do, to get ready. Great. You set your spiritual compass in the right direction. That's awesome. What happened next? What do you mean? So when John pointed you to Jesus, what did you do with that? Well, we listened to his teaching. 
He had some pretty awesome things to say, made us think about the way we live and stuff. So what did you think about when he died? Sounded pretty cruel, sad really. He seemed like a nice fella. And the resurrection, what does that mean to you? Not all that much really. Well, how does it feel to have the risen Holy Spirit of Jesus living within you? Who? There's a Holy Spirit. That's kind of the gist of the conversation. Let me parallel that with some church conversations I've had. How did you become a follower of Jesus? Well, I came as a kid or moved to a community and made some great friends in the church and it just made sense to keep on going. Sweet, what about your faith? Well, I was baptized as a kid and I guess I've been around it ever since. When did you actually place your faith in Jesus and choose to follow him? What do you mean? Have you ever come to a point where you, were look, where you looked at the cross and said, Jesus, save me? Have you ever made a personal decision to turn from your sin and give yourself to following Jesus? Have you ever had that assurance that Jesus is alive and well in your heart? And many times when I talk to people about their faith, I've actually encountered no. And it's not limited to denomination either. Are you a disciple? a follower, a deliberate follower of Jesus Christ, baptized in his name and filled with his Holy Spirit? Or are we still an observer of Jesus? Part of the scene in human terms, but your heart is standing on the outside looking in. Philippians 2.12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the complete opposite of casual observation. Are we saved? Is Jesus within? Are we truly following Jesus? Are we living under the mercy and the perspective of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's one thing. Now let's move on to something else. Chapter 19, verse 11. Let's get back to our Bibles. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. We just heard about that. And the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. That's all kinds of wrong. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Wow. Talk about revival, eh? You know, when we pray for revival, are we prepared for what might come in the door when that happens? (laughs) Openly confessing what they've done? 
ready to light things on fire to deal with it? Ephesus was an incredibly idolatrous city. The worship styles there left a trail of emotional and spiritual destruction. The people that were in that stuff were damaged goods. They were damaged big time by what they had called worship. And we read here that people are being set free from their destructive behaviours. Demonic spirits are clearing out in the name of Jesus. It's great. People are going as far as taking Paul's sweaty aprons and hankies. The stuff he was probably doing on a day on the tools. Throwing it on people and they're being delivered and healed. That showed some really cool things. There is a clear, extraordinary anointing that is present in this guy, in Paul. This wasn't a, a televangelist peddling silk cloths. There was authenticity in his ministry here. All right, this is not a this is not some shark, not some spiritual charlatan. This is a guy doing the real thing. So there's power and there is an authority and there is an authenticity because of what the Holy Spirit is doing. We've got to walk in that. We can't walk in anything less than that. But also, it's a big statement to the priests and the people who did ministry of sorts in all the pagan temples. In a place where you were required to wear pure white in the temples. So you could please your angry pagan gods. God is using dirty old sweat rags as a tool of healing. Pretty cool. The name of Jesus is being exalted and a city is in a state of deep deep reverence for what is going on. It's pretty cool there. I love hearing about this and I go, God, let it happen here. But are we ready? We read here about people who are getting serious and naming their sins publicly. It's that 50,000 drachma bonfire. All right, a drachma is a day's wage for a skilled professional. Two days wage for a a labourer. That's what it kind of was there. Millions of dollars. That might explain why the tradies would be in an uproar later on. Idolatry in Ephesus was a multi-million dollar industry. It would be like losing a whole industry here in town. Take out forestry, take out dairy and see how our city appears. Take an industry off and see how we do. It's kind of what that's the impact the gospel is having in Ephesus. That's a bit of heat in the kitchen, right? How would the church handle that? <laughs> and amongst all that, we read about seven interesting gentlemen. They're all seemingly sons of a Jewish priest. And they're captivated by what's going on. And, uh, you know, they're believers in the God of Israel, so they're, they're happy that their God is getting some attention in their pagan city, which is pretty cool. And so we read here that they're trying to get in on the act. When you read this, they're beaten, you know, a, a demon beats them and leaves them naked and beaten. There's almost a bit of comedy to it, you know. You could always put a bit of Benny Hill music to the back of that. But in reality, it's deeply sad scary, dark. They see power that is coming from the messengers of Jesus. They 
correctly identify that there is power in the name of Jesus. So they take a local spiritually, spiritually deserved pagan and they attempt to perform an exorcism in the name of Jesus. They use the mantra that they thought they were supposed to use in the name of that Jesus guy that Paul speaks about. Count me out. Mm. There's a term for that today. We call it secondhand faith. They've been close enough to hear about it all. They make the right noises about Christian faith, but there's no conviction in their spirit, no power in their ministry. And this is because their faith is not in the Jesus that they know, but the Jesus they've merely heard about. We know that Timothy remained as a bishop of Ephesus in 2 Timothy 3.5. Paul teaches him to be aware that there would be people like this. They would have a form of godliness. They would have a form, but they would deny the power thereof. They would have an appearance. They would have a loose association of it. But they would live in a way that contradicted the power or the substance of their faith. These seven sons were experiencing a mechanical second-hand devotion. It duplicated the form of this religion called Christianity, but it had no power. And they soon learned that in a spiritually hostile place, they would bring in a knife to a gunfight. There's no way you can stand. How many know we have a spiritually hostile place out there? We do. There's a lot of stuff out there. We've got to be ready for it. And you can't just go, oh, yeah, that Jesus that everyone talks about, yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. Let's do that. Let's claim the name of Jesus. Be you know, healed, delivered, set free, or anything like that. If we've got form and no substance, if we've got form and no power, we can't, afford, we can't stand. Too often we get caught up in the trappings of religion. We can attend, we can say all the right things. But sometimes the Jesus that we speak of is the Jesus of somebody else. Our parents, our friends, our mentors, the pastor, our spouses. In our story, it's the Jesus of Paul, not the Jesus of me. Anything to try to do in his name like that will fall to the dust. If it's not a first-hand Jesus, it won't have any effectual power in our lives or in anyone we minister to. So I'm going to wind up there because I had to... That's all pretty much my main points I wanted to make today. Given the fact that we've talked about mission a lot, we talked about external stuff in the last number of weeks, this can feel a little bit confronting, a bit jarring, and I'm aware of that. But it's good to be personal at times. It's good to go, all right, we've got them covered and we've got this ministry to them worked out. But it does pay before we go and do that to look at ourselves and actually go, where am I really at? 
am I prepared for this? The idea of the New Testament is that we are all ministers. Every believer is a minister. Therefore, we need to examine our hearts and work out if we're really ready for the ministry that we're called to do. A couple of questions as I conclude here that I'd love you to ponder. Am I actually saved? Maybe we've we've been around here for a while. Maybe we've gone through the traditional rites of some sort. Maybe we're theoretically tied to the Christian faith. But spiritually, we haven't done all that much with it. Maybe you feel you've booked your ticket to heaven based on the service you've put into the church or community. But you haven't given the cross and resurrection all that much thought. Maybe you've been a keen observer of the faith. You've enjoyed the teaching of Jesus, but haven't made the faith step of becoming an insider and an intimate follower. We can observe all we like, we can serve all we like, we can do all the rituals we like. But if we've never made a personal choice to place our faith in Jesus, if, we've, if we're not looking to the work of, of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, his ascension and going, that saves me, not anything I do. Not my years of service, not my faith tradition, not that. Not, my, not this, but what he did saves me. We're not clinging to that. We're clinging to the wrong things. Will you be like Apollos and the 12 at Ephesus who heard the truth and, be, and responded the right way? Is Jesus mine or somebody else's? Can you say with absence, absolute certainty that you know Jesus? Can you say that you are walking in his resurrected power? Or can you only point to the faith of someone else that you embrace through tradition, admiration or heritage? When these seven silly guys tried to do something in the borrowed name of Jesus, they were quickly exposed exposed here. But when we walk in true, first-hand, intimate and powerful experience of Jesus, we become the empowered people we're supposed to be in him. Anything less isn't going to cut it. The world desperately needs powerful ministers of the gospel. People who are inside this thing, who are in Christ, grafted into this thing. Not just part of a community, but part of Christ. And drawing on his Holy Spirit power. Is that where you are at?